For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we started the book of Daniel last week. It's a really interesting Old Testament book. We're going to be in chapter 2 talking about this crazy dream that this guy, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had. And so as we started off in the series and sort of introduced the book, we talked about how Daniel and his friends were sort of um, aristocratic uh, teens of, uh, of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had come in and captured Judah, hauled them off into captivity to kind of brainwash them and try to use them to help uh, ensure his rule over the Jewish people. And they were, as we talked about, in this situation where they had to kind of choose, were they going to be separate from the culture that they were captives in? Were they going to be assimilated into that culture and lose their identity as Jewish people? Or were they going to be lights in the midst of darkness? Were they going to bring the love of God to the people of Babylon? Which is exactly, amazingly, what God had called them to do through the prophet Jeremiah, was to be a blessing to their captors to bring love and truth and light and to be praying for the city of Babylon was what Jeremiah instructed them to do. And also to watch out because there would be false prophets who come up and say that you know, we should be an insurgency and we should you know, rebel against, uh, against the Babylonians. He says, that's not it at all. You're going to be there for 70 years, God said. And I want you to make those years count. So Daniel and his friends try to figure out how to do that. They decide to love the people of Babylon, especially King Nebuchadnezzar, that they, are, uh, they enter into his service as his counsel, as his wise men, and they are trying to help him understand God's ways. They could have played the victims of circumstance, right? It would have been so easy Right? I mean, even if you understand that, you know, God had warned people of Israel for generations that if you turn away from me and you worship these false gods, I will let your enemies come in and haul you off into captivity. You know, you could see that and you could be like, well, that's exactly what our ancestors did. That's exactly what our, our kings and our rulers did. But, you know, Daniel and his buddies seem sincere in their desire to follow God. And so what their question probably would have been, well, what about me? I, I, I didn't choose this. I wasn't rebelling against you, God, yet I've been ripped away from my family. Are they going to be the victims of circumstance and blame God, blame their parents, blame others? Instead, they, rep- they decide to glorify God through their difficult circumstances. John Lennox, in his book, uh, put it this way. I thought it was really cool. He says, Uh, Why, for example, should they or we have to suffer for other people's actions? After all, they were normal young people, full of energy and ambition. Yet already in their hearts, they were determined to try to follow God. So why would they have to go through the pain of separation of their families? But in the end, Daniel and his friends came to understand that God is interested not only in global history, but also in the personal history of those who are often innocently caught up in the tragic aftermath. And that's interesting because what he's saying here is Daniel and his friends understood that God and his sovereignty is going to move human history in a very specific direction. On the macro, global sense, uh, the human experiment has a beginning and it has an end, and God is guiding it through that path. 
Yet as he moves on that macro scale, he also cares very much about us as individuals. And so there will be times and there will be circumstances, depending on the era and the culture that we're born into, where we will face difficult circumstances as a result of the time and place in which we are born. And we would be, we would be wrong to interpret those difficult circumstances as the punishment of God on us. Instead, we should realize that God will work through and reach out even in the midst of that kind of turmoil to bring love and peace and joy into our lives. That yes, there is a larger picture in which the plan of God is being executed, but there is a smaller picture where he is very involved and interested in your life and the choices that you make will matter in the course of his plan. Daniel and his friends decided to choose to be used by God. So we get to chapter 2, and now it's the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And he had dreams, and it says his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And the king gave orders to call in the magicians and the conjurers. He's bothered by something, and he's like, bring in, you know, my religious counsel. I'm I'm very disturbed. And the sorcerers and the Chaldeans, he says, bring them in to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And they're like, oh, this is our bread and butter, right? Dream interpretation, we got this, you know? And what you would do, you know, if you were a a shyster, a slickster, a con, is you would take the king's dream and then you would kind of interpret it in however it worked out most favorably for you. Oh, that means you should give all your employees a promotion, O king, right? (laughs) Like that was how this thing kind of worked when, you know, you have a false ideology that this whole thing is built on. And Neb is saying, you know, I had this really bad dream and I need you guys to explain it to me. And they spoke to the king in Aramaic and said, O king, live forever. Tell us what your dream is, and we will be more than happy to explain to you what it means. But that's not, if we read carefully, what Neb was actually asking. He said, bring them here to tell me what my dream is and its interpretation. That's a little bit of a different circumstance. The king replied to the Chaldeans, verse 5, the command for me is firm. I did not say, come and interpret my dream. I said, tell me what my dream is. If you do not make known to me what the dream is and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb. Your houses will be burned and made a rubbish heap. That sucks. If you're, <laughs> if you're one of these guys, you know, one of the things you have to understand as we read through this book is Nebuchadnezzar, not a very nice man. He's fed up. He's been exposed to the the fakery, right? He understands that these guys are basically manipulating him all the time. They come in and they give him, you know, the counsel that's in their best interest. And he wants to see something real. And so he does something that's uh, murderous and psychopathic, right? I mean, Neb is an interesting guy. As you read through this, you really get to know Nebuchadnezzar, right? And the thing, I was trying to think of, like, what's a modern example? Who who can we relate to in the modern era that would even put a category of Nebuchadnezzar? And I don't know if you're, like, a fan of The Walking Dead, but Negan is this character, and he is, like, 
this perfect example. Like if you know Walking Dead, when you read about Nebuchadnezzar, picture Negan. Because he is like the most evil, wicked, villainous dude who has absolute power. And he's kind of charismatic. And, and, and you're like, I, I cannot like him at all. But I kind of do, you know? <laughs> you're like, that's, I mean, that's, he is the exact example of how absolute power corrupts absolutely. He can do whatever he wants and no one. No one will say any different. And when you think about it in those terms, you know, here he is, a religious seeker, somebody who, you know, has an interest in the way that the world works, and he's been exposed to this fakery and this manipulation his whole life. Some of us have seen a lot of religious fakery, a lot of false promises made by quote-unquote religious men. And if we had absolute power, we might say something like this too, actually. Tell me, prove to me that your spiritual claims are real. Prove it, or I'll pull your arms and your legs off and knock your house down, is what he's saying. If, but if you are able, if you show me something real, he says, if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. And so you can put yourself in these guys' shoes. And they're like, oh, we got, we got to figure out how to get out of this. Like, you know, oh, great king, they say. There's not a man on earth who could declare the matter to the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. King, be reasonable, Right? No one can tell you what your dream was. Only you know that. And, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, me and God. God would know. You're supposed to like have a direct line to him, right? I'm not going to buy it. They say, moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. You know, their religious mentality was there are many gods and, and they don't hang out with us. They're not around here. They don't, hang, they don't talk to us. We can't access them. They would know, but, but they won't tell us. No one can tell you what you want to know, but the gods and the gods are not here. That's his counselors, his spiritual counselors' position on this request. And because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. He says, you know what? I'm sick of you. We're just going to kill you all. Which, you know, might not be so bad, except that, remember, Daniel and his buddies are wise men of Babylon. They're right in there with these guys. And so now they have a death sentence hanging over their head. So Neb is, he's fed up with these false promises. And what he's saying is something that, you know, while we can't relate to murder everybody that I don't like, I hope, right? Uh, we can relate to this. No more hocus pocus. No more false promises. No more trickery. I have a problem. I mean, he genuinely, you can tell, and when you see what the dream is, you will understand, right? He was disturbed by this dream. He was like, I know that this means something. It really bothers me. 
I know that there's purpose behind it and I don't know what it is and where do I turn to for help? The Chaldeans, the wise men, I know that they only have their best interests in mind, not, not mine. What do I do? He was tired of empty religion and looking for something real. And we can relate to that. Show me something that works. Show me something that doesn't just benefit the religious or the leaders or the rulers, but that, but that is real. Is there a God? Are there gods? Is there a spiritual realm? Is it real? And if it is, I want to know it. I want to engage with it. But I am fed up with the fakeness. That's where his position's coming from. So he exposes the false spirituality, and orders them to all be killed. So the decree went forth in 13 that the wise men should be slain, and that included, and they began to look for Daniel and his friends, and they were going to be killed. So now in 16 we read that Daniel went and he requested of the king. When this got to Daniel, he says, whoa, 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 go to the king. Tell him it's me, Daniel. Tell him, give me a little bit of time, and I will declare not just the interpretation, but I'll tell him what his dream is. And he went to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he said, we have to pray. And in 18, it says that they got together and so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. They have the same understanding that the Chaldeans do. Only God would know the answer, but they know that God speaks to men. God wants a relationship with us. God, the gods are not off in some, you know, palace in the sky, you know, glaring down at men with no relationship, with no connection. They know that God is a God of relationship. And that he is very much aware of their circumstances and that if he wants to, he can reveal. And so they ask. And they put it in the context of, Lord, we want to do your will. We want to be your lights to the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar is terribly bothered by this, and he's fed up with the fake spirituality. God, will you give us something real that we can give him? Help us, he says, so that we and our friends will not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, that is an authentic spiritual response. Unlike the wise men and the Chaldeans, who are just trying to figure out how to manipulate the situation, right? They're facing certain death, and they're not trying to trick anybody. They're not trying to cover up. They're not trying to run. They do what desperate people do in the midst of incredibly tough circumstances. They get on their knees and they pray. God, only you can fix this, but we know that you are real. And if we die as a result of this, then that's your will, so be it. But if you want us to live, and you want us to be a blessing to Nebuchadnezzar, and to the people of Babylon, then we need you to do something here that only you can do. And God grants his request. And immediately throughout this entire affair, Daniel is super clear. This is from God. This is the power of God at work. He knows there is nothing special about him except that he was willing to ask. And he gives glory to God 
It says in verse 19 that the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. This is authentic. This is real spirituality. And praise God that he is a God who has answers even to our toughest questions. God comes through. He reveals the dream to Daniel because God cares. And he is involved in the events of human history. God cares, and that truth lays on Daniel's heart where he realizes God has not forsaken us. God is a God who keeps his promises. And as we continue to follow him, you say we need to be captives in Babylon. We'll go be captives in Babylon. But we're going to do it, and we're going to love the people of Babylon. And God says, as you do that, I will protect you, and I will open doors for you, and I will work wonders through you because you are right there working within my will. So he praises God. He acknowledges only you, God, can do this. Only you are able to set this up and create opportunities like this. And he's recognizing, we see in this, we should stop for just a moment to recognize what this means about who the God of the Bible is. God is determined to protect Daniel and his friends. God is a God who keeps his promises. And as Daniel and his friends go through this incredibly difficult, lifelong ordeal of being captives, and as they give their faith to him, he comes through again and again and again because he is a God who keeps his promises. We also see that God loves to work through people. He could have shown up in Neb's room, right? Been like, Neb, that dream, let me explain it. I'm the, I'm the true God. But instead, he works through Daniel. God is a relational God. He wants to use us, the willing, to reveal his truth and himself to those who don't know him. And God is a God who cares about murdering psychopaths like Nebuchadnezzar. God genuinely has a heart for the king of Babylon who besieged his people, destroyed his temple, and hauled them off and does things like rips people's arms off and puts them on top of their, their house as rubbish. God says, I, I want to reach him. I want him to know me. Because he's seeking. At the end of the day, you have to at least recognize that in his own way, Nebuchadnezzar's genuinely looking for some kind of spiritual truth. And God says, I'm the God who answers those kinds of questions. So we read on in 24, it says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and spoke to Arioch and said, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Again, we see something truly authentic here, which is the value of human life. Nowhere do you find the value of human life being so high as you do in the Bible. That every life matters, and to God and to Daniel, including the lives of the Chaldeans and the wise men and the manipulators, including the people who were completely false and were completely leading people astray from God, Daniel and God care about them as well. And so he stands up not just for his team, but the other team as well. The false spiritualists of Babylon 
will be saved because of Daniel's faith as well. He says, take me to the king's presence. I will declare the interpretation to the king. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing. He's in a situation now where the all-powerful creator God of the universe has revealed to him this thing that happened in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. No one knows this dream but Neb and God, right? And so now that he knows, he has an incredible trump card where he could kind of really set himself up here of like, I, I have true power, and you should listen to me in all things, Nebuchadnezzar, right? And, you know, put my people back in Israel and rebuild our temple. You know, he can, he can try to play this however he wants. But the way he chooses to play it is he wants Nebuchadnezzar to meet God, not himself. And he's very careful to ensure that Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is not about me, Daniel. This is about the God of Israel who is reaching out to you, O king. So in 26, the king says to Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answers before the king and says, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men nor conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who does reveal mysteries. And he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the later days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while in your bed. God is real, he says. It is God who has answered your request. It is God who has moved into your life. And it is God who comes through. He is the genuine article, the real source of spiritual inquiry You want to see, you're saying, I'm fed up with the Chaldeans. I'm fed up with the wise men of Babylon. I'm fed up with these many gods. And Daniel says, God has heard that. And he has spoken to you, my king, and wants you to know him. He has made known to the king. So he starts explaining the dream. He just starts describing this thing that no one could know because Nebuchadnezzar had refused to tell anybody. He says, as for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mystery has made known to you what will take place. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue and the statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor. You saw this statue, he says, and it was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. He's giving them a super specific, right? So there can be no question the detail of this. And you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of clay and iron and it crushed them. Interesting. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's a crazy dream. 
You can understand, I mean, when you look at that and you're like, okay, there's a big statue. And I mean, it's like, it's so specific. If you had a dream like that, you would be like, this has to mean something. There's, there's a purpose behind this, right? This, this is really strange and specific and it's disturbing. It's destructive at the same time that it's impressive. And you can see why Nebuchadnezzar was like, I, I need help. I need to understand. This, is, this means something. Who can tell me what this means? But he's afraid to just throw out the job of interpretation because he knows that it will be manipulated. But if he can find somebody who can tell him the dream, then he can trust the interpretation. And Daniel, because of God working in his life and answering his prayers, has done just that. He's explained exactly what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. He says in 36, this was the dream. So that's what the details were. Now, we will tell you its interpretation. What did it mean? He says, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over all the land. You are the head of gold. Now, this is important for a number of reasons. He's explaining the interpretation, but he's also cueing Nebuchadnezzar into something that Nebuchadnezzar desperately needs to understand, which is the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar, the greatness of his kingdom, the authority of his rule are on loan from God. It's not his greatness. It's a gift. It's God has chosen him for a time such as this to be in this place. And whoop, I mean, that just clearly goes right over Neb's head, Right? So that, that's going to be the message that God is going to continue to repeat to Nebuchadnezzar for many chapters as we move forward. But it's the first time where Neb's being confronted with the idea, you're not the greatest thing in the universe. You have a great kingdom and you are a great king, but there is one who is greater than you are. But God has shown you that you are the king of the greatest nation on earth and that your rule has, will last your entire life. And then after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And that's what the silver was. Now, we know that that would be the next kingdom that took over Babylon in that area and became dominant was called Media Persia, right? It was a conglomeration of the Medes and the Persians. And they were next. And they were not as great. They were not um, as wealthy as Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon. And then he says a third kingdom of bronze and he gives us one little interesting detail that this kingdom will rule over all the earth. The next kingdom that would rise up, we know, would be Greece. And understand what I'm doing here in explaining this. I'm not, I'm not saying that this, this is the full prophecy and that this proves that God knows anything other than what this does is this proves to Nebuchadnezzar that God knew what his dream was, right? We stand over here on this side of history and all we're doing is right now is plugging in the names that we know because we look backward and say, well, this is what these countries would have been because he's describing kingdoms without names at this point and describing small details about them. And 40, he says, there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things so that like iron that breaks into pieces, it will crush and break all these into pieces. The next kingdom that would arise in dominance after Greece would be Rome. It does sound a little bit like Rome. In that, you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It would be a divided kingdom, 
but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. These strange iron-clay feet, uh, which uh, has received a lot of speculation and a lot of... We, it's not clear. Uh, theologians call this the new Rome. What, what is this kingdom uh, and what is it about is not entirely clear. It seems like it's something like Rome, but it's not as strong as Rome or it's not as united as Rome. There's, there's something about it. We, we today don't know what the new Rome is. But that's the interpretation that he gives him is that this is uh, about the kingdoms. And what God is showing you is the flow of human history from our time all the way to the end. He says, in 43, in it that you saw the iron mixed with clay, common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but it will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. That's the stone that he described that was cut without human hands. This kingdom of God, it says, will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out without, uh, cut out of the mountain without human hands, and it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, and the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. God has shown you, O king, the full course of human history, that the kingdoms of men will come and they will arise and they will fall. But at some point, God will break in and he'll bring an end to all of that and he will set up his rule. And God will rule the kingdoms of men. And clearly that hasn't happened yet. And so a part of this is yet fulfilled. And that's why you know, people freak out and they're like, what is the kingdom of iron and, of, of, of iron and clay? Right, Because that's the last kingdom of men, and there's all this speculation over it. And the book of Daniel gets into that a lot more. And this is not really intended to be an example to you of impressive biblical prophecy because we haven't really done very much prophecy at this point. This becomes the groundwork for something else. God describes the kingdom of men, And it serves as this foundation. There will be two more visions that Daniel has that are connected to this vision that will begin to round out the details of what these kingdoms are and gets very much into specifics and even starts naming the specific names of those kingdoms before they arise. The fifth kingdom, what it is, we don't know, but its details also become more described and more clear as we study through this book. And so we look at this, and we have to start out with what's the point, okay? Why is God doing this? And we have to look within the text itself, you know, what, why, what is the contemporary in the time that this was written, in the time that this, these events were written down, what was God trying to do? He was trying to rescue Daniel and his friends from destruction. He was trying to set them up as an incredible witness. He gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream in part so that Nebuchadnezzar would trust them and see that they have something spiritually authentic. He also did this because Nebuchadnezzar, in his own way, is seeking out spiritual truth. And so this doesn't prove anything to us, really. 
But it proves something incredible to Nebuchadnezzar. The dream and its interpretation, he would have known, were dead on. Each of these nations are real. Each of these nations are described with incredible accuracy. And as we go on and we look at the visions that connect back to this vision, I will be making an argument to you about the greatness of biblical prophecy. Chapter 7, chapters 8, and then you get into 9 and others, and you're just like, there is an incredible amount of prophecy, but we're not there yet. We can't lose the point of what is happening right here in the passage. These kingdoms will be described with such great detail that that many skeptics believe that this book absolutely could not have been written when it claims to have been written in 600 B.C., but it must have been written at least up to 200 B.C. because of the incredible detail it has about the kingdoms of Rome and Greece and specifics into the life of Alexander the Great and so many other things. But there is strong evidence to believe that this is indeed looking forward. And it does give incredibly specific prophecy that we can verify is older than some of the events that it describes and that were fulfilled in detail hundreds of years after the fact. But we can't get caught up in that right now. That's like four or five weeks away. Let's focus on Nebuchadnezzar. What is God's plan? Remember, God had instructed the people of Israel in their captivity, to be a blessing to the Babylonian king. And as wicked as Nebuchadnezzar was, God was doing and reaching out to him in incredible ways. He's clearly dissatisfied with the Babylonian mystic religion, right? He's clearly looking for something that's real, and God is the God who's looking for people who are looking for something that's real. He's the God who's not afraid of our questions because he has answers and who moves towards us when we ask, when we call out to God and say, if you're real and if you're there, I want to understand you. Will you show me who you are? God just loves that kind of prayer. He answers it all the time. And he will move toward you if you will do that. We read that the, the last thing that Daniel said as he made the interpretation clear is, the great God has, been, has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. God, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, is reaching out to you to show you the future so that you will know that he is real. He got answers. He got what he wanted. How would he respond to that? This man who can do whatever he wants to do, who believes he himself is like a God, would he be impressed by this? Would it be meaningful to him? Would he be skeptical? You know, we're going to see something about what's on his heart because sometimes we have questions and we get answers and we don't care how truthful the answers are because we don't, our questions weren't genuine. Is Nebuchadnezzar genuine in his desire to seek for spiritual answers? We read that his response here, in 46, the king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel 
and gave orders to present to him an offering of, fra- of fragrant incense. He's very impressed, right? And who gets all the credit? Daniel, right? So yes, it's clear that this was the dream and that the interpretation is something that makes sense to him. And he definitely is having a religious experience, a spiritual experience. And he believes something has happened here. But he doesn't get the whole thing. He doesn't get the big picture. This is a process. And many of us here can tell you that, you know, before we became Christians, we needed a process. We needed to have lots of questions answered. And we were moved along in what theologians like to call things like the decision continuum, right? On the decision continuum, Nebuchadnezzar starts as murderous lunatic who thinks he's God, right? And he moves a little bit forward to murderous lunatic who thinks Daniel's God gets stuff done. And that's great. He's, that's a big step that he's made, right? The murderous lunatic part needs to, you know, that's, get rid of that letter later on. He hasn't reached God is greater than himself and worthy of following. That would be a, a big step, wouldn't it? And he certainly hasn't reached genuinely following God. But God is patient with him in the same way that he is patient with you and I. And no matter what our starting point is and how dark it is, how egotistical it is, how skeptical it is, God will move us along that continuum towards faith if we are genuine, if we want to know the truth. He will show it to us. 47, the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Whose God is it? It's Daniel's God. It's not Nebuchadnezzar's God. I'm impressed, he says. There's something really powerful, really true about you. I like you, man. And I want you around. I want you to like me. And the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. And so now he's in a real position where he can affect not just Nebuchadnezzar, but all of Babylon to bring the light of God and the love of God as Jeremiah had told them to during their captivity to show the people of Babylon that there is a God, that he is real, that he loves them, and that they can have a relationship with him too. What do we draw from this? We just look at the heart of God. You're looking at the heart of God. Old Testament, okay? Sometimes people like to say things like, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are different. No, wrong. The God of the Old Testament is always trying to reach people with his love the same way Jesus is. It is not a different God with a different agenda and a different program. He is always going out of his way over and over and over again, scouring and searching the earth, looking for somebody who is willing, who has a heart that is willing to respond to who he is. That is the God of the Bible. He is the God of answers, and he does not fear our questions. He loves our questions when they're honest, when we want to know things. What we are saying from his perspective is we want to know him. That's who he is, and he wants to share those answers. He's not just a God who is there. He is a God who speaks. 
He speaks through his word. He spoke through his prophets, and he'll speak through his Holy Spirit, and he'll speak in your heart if you allow him in. If you will dare to ask him honest questions, the real questions that are in your heart, he will joyfully begin to answer those questions. No matter how skeptical you are, if there's an inkling on your part of wanting to know him, he will move in your life. No matter how evil you've been, people often make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, hey, you want to come out to a Bible study? You know, we got this cool thing. And they're like, oh, I can't walk into a church. God will strike me down the second I walk in the door, right? We all like to think that way. We like to think that God's a grumpy old man who's just waiting. And it's as though, like, once we come into church, we're in range of God's lightning bolts, right? <laughs> I got news for you. You're in range. God doesn't want to strike you down with a lightning bolt. He wants to fill you up with his love. That's what he wants. He wants you to see the reality of who he is. And it doesn't matter how far from him you've been. You can be with him right now. And he will take you and your questions seriously. Even with someone as conceited and dangerous as Nebuchadnezzar, God sees them as worth it. What else? Well, for those of us who are believers, I think there's a really important lesson here too. We tend to uh, want to look for the low-hanging fruit, right? The people that's like, oh, they, you know, we kind of judge people we meet, and they're like, oh, you would be really receptive to knowing God. You're not going to murder me if I try to tell you about Jesus, right? And we try to like pick our shots, right? And what is the guiding point for how we pick our shots for who we share our faith with? It's usually comfort. This would be the least uncomfortable person for me to share the God's love with. Nebuchadnezzar and guys like that do not fall in that category. But it doesn't mean that they're any further away from responding to God's truth. We need to pray for the Nebuchadnezzars in our lives. Don't just be bold with non-threatening people. Be bold because the truth is worthy of boldness. And sometimes the angriest people, the most disconnected people, are actually the people who are closest and most desirous of finding real spiritual truth. Hostility towards God and men could mean that someone is so disgruntled with the world system that they're just desperate for something real. Or something true. And that's what I hope this week that we'll pray about and that we think about as we go out into the world and meet with our neighbors and our friends and as you interact with the Nebuchadnezzars of your life, will you pray for them? And if you are here and you are a skeptic and you are not sure, let me just say that you are welcome. We are so glad that you are here and that we hope that you will ask your questions and that you will seek spiritual truth. And we hope that you will have an experience here with God where you can meet him and begin to understand him the way that so many of us have. Because we think it's the best thing that ever happened in our lives, and we want to share it with you. Next week, we'll be in chapter 3, where Neb tries to burn up Daniel's buddies in a giant furnace (laughs) because they won't worship a giant statue he made of himself. It's a process, people. (laughs) We'll also be talking about 
the, the issue that there are many, are there many, the question of are there many paths to God or just one? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely relate to Nebuchadnezzar in this story, God, in this sense of uh, I know that I was a scary person to come and, and try to talk to you about you. Um, and I was, I, I was eager to punish those who would dare to try to tell me that I needed something greater than myself. And yet you raised up Daniels to come and, and share with me. And the idea that we could be a Daniel to someone else is just too wonderful to, to ignore. Help us, God, to, um, to think about who you want to, us to move toward and how we can do that in faith. And help us to do it together with joy, uh, not under compulsion, but... Um, as a response of your love overflowing in our lives into the lives of the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.